0: So women are quitting more than men, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community. And we see the same thing for the individuals who want to work remotely. Those from underrepresented marginalized groups are more likely to prefer working remotely. Why? Well, because if they go into the workplace and they don't get this experience of inclusion, they don't feel welcomed, they don't feel like they can contribute equally, they suffer from microaggressions, then why would they want to go there?
1: Leaders face challenges every single day. That's why Udemy Business is bringing you a new podcast called Leading Up. I'm Alan Todd, the host of Leading Up and vice president of Udemy Business. In every episode, I have conversations with guests who share the inspiration, advice, and research you need to level up. Let's work, lead, and live differently. When I talk with leaders across every industry, I hear a few things on their mind. They're looking to drive innovation, they're looking to retain employees, and they're looking to create a healthy workplace culture where everyone feels valued. In this episode, we'll be talking about how you can become a more inclusive leader, aiming higher and performing better. Stephanie Johnson is here to offer research and real life examples of inclusive leadership. She's a leadership professor at Rice University, where she runs the Doerr Institute for New Leaders. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, Alan, for having me.
1: Yeah, great to have you here today. I'm so excited. You've been talking about this forever, but we've talked uh, many times in the past. So, you know, as I think about it, on, on the topic of inclusive leadership, you have a Wall Street Journal bestseller. You've raised millions of dollars for research in academic research. You've spoken at the White House and the World Economic Forum, the Conference Board. Can you give us a little bit of background? Like how did you come to study inclusive leadership and what drives you to keep focused leadership position in this area?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for the very kind introduction. I I appreciate that. I feel like a warm, fuzzy feeling right now. Nice. So that, the question of, of why study Inclusion. I think, you know, first I really studied leadership and diversity. And if you want to take that back even further, I really tried just to study leadership as I'm a Mexican American female business professor. I tried to kind of minimize the topic of diversity because I really wanted to be taken seriously. And I have to say that, like, now I'm so ashamed to even say this is true. But it's the truth. And despite that effort, when I studied leadership, I consistently found differences in the way we evaluate male leaders versus female leaders, leaders of color, and really big differences in how leaders impact their team members who might be women or people of color, members of a different marginalized group. And so even though you know maybe I didn't want to study this topic, I really couldn't help it because that's what the data show. I've really started to find practices that effectively moved the needle on diversity when it came to things like recruitment, hiring, selection. But as we're seeing today in this kind of 2022 context, you can recruit the top talent all day long, but it doesn't do you a lot of good if those folks leave. And so that started to emerge as a kind of unfortunate finding that women And people of color, women of color are more likely to quit. And so why is that? And the answer is really a lack of inclusion. And so that became the 2.0 of my research areas. How do you get people to stay after you do the work of hiring the very best talent? And so you can actually get the full benefit that diversity brings to organizations.
1: Yeah, that's, it's so interesting. Did did I hear you correctly? Did you say that in the beginning when you began your research and you wanted to study leadership, when you started to go down the diversity or the inclusion lens, was that was that viewed as fringe at the time?
0: <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that exact word was used. Like this is fringe or people called it niche. I actually submitted a paper to a journal that was on gender differences in leadership and got... A review back from the editor and they said, this is a really niche topic. Women, you might consider submitting to a gender journal. And they listed a few journals focused on gender. And I'm like, women are 51% of the population in the United States. How is studying women a niche topic? And now I think it's actually, you know, one of the most pressing topics, I think, in corporate America.
1: It seems almost unfathomable to me today. I was like, wait a minute. Did you really say that? Like this was a niche. Yeah. And now we're on to a topic that you pretty much can't find any facet of leadership business where there's not something that brings a lens through inclusion, diversity, equity, well-being, belonging, all these things that you've been writing about forever. So, but I want to focus in on on the topic of innovation. So, you've written that diversity and inclusion, and some of these practices, when done well, drive innovation. So talk about what your research uncovered?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the more consistent findings about diversity, that when you have diverse teams, you'll see higher financial performance of organizations. And this is particularly true in companies that focus on innovation. So this has been shown by McKinsey, Bain & Company, lots of large Consulting firms reveal this finding that when you have a more diverse organization, they produce more revenue and a greater percentage of that revenue comes from innovation. This was also shown in banks in an academic article that banks that had more diversity practices had greater revenue. And this was particularly true among banks that focused on innovation. And I think for a long time, the focus was just diversity but you can imagine why diversity would drive innovation, you have different perspectives, you're able to capture new market share, you understand a different segment of the population, you have difference of opinion where you have people discussing and arguing different points. But in more nuanced studies, you only really see this benefit of diversity when you also have inclusion. So if you have an environment where people don't feel psychologically safe to speak up or, I think maybe you don't want to hear from me as the underrepresented person in the room. You don't get the benefit of diverse perspectives, basically when they're silenced. So you need both the diversity so that you have difference of viewpoints at the table, but then you really need the inclusion to encourage individuals to speak up and weigh in, and so they can share those different perspectives that they have.
1: Yeah. So, so how about uh, any tips for being a more inclusive leader? to increase those differences of all the points of view to drive innovation?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say, you know, if this isn't the norm in your office, I think it takes a lot of effort up front to tell people, hey, all of a sudden, I want you to start sharing your viewpoints, right? If you haven't done that in the past. But the bright side is after you do this for a while, it just becomes more natural. But let's just assume this isn't the norm. What can you do? I really suggest that people start by restructuring the way meetings happen. And so you like total overhaul, you can explain why you're doing this. You want different views on the table so much so that I suggest you send out the topics and questions you're gonna discuss to people on the team in advance. You can even have them send their responses and thoughts to you and then curate those thoughts and begin maybe with the areas where everyone agreed. We have a lot of agreement on this point. And start out with, okay, there's everyone agrees before we move forward, give me the dissenting view. Why would someone not agree? I know you all agree, but tell me why you don't. And so you're rewarding or encouraging an environment where difference is actually valued. If people aren't speaking up, you know, maybe you need to go around the room and have each person respond. Actually, having people know the questions in advance creates an environment where, like, introverts are more likely to respond. They've had a minute to think about their answers. When you move on to the topics that you actually did disagree on, you've kind of warmed up this disagreement muscle, and so it becomes, you know, like, okay, well, even if I do agree, I know that I'm encouraged to give a differing viewpoint. One of the folks that I interviewed for Inclusify was the CEO of Catholic Health Charities, and he talked about the fact that it's hard to get a bunch of like really lovely, kind people to disagree with each other. And so they're really likely to suffer from conformity. So he would appoint a devil's advocate in every meeting and then never, ever, ever humiliate, punish, berate someone for giving an idea that you don't agree with. So if you tell me, I really want to hear what you have to say, Stephanie, and then I start talking and you say, no, I actually don't want to hear that. Then I never speaking again, right? Right. So it's really important that you set that psychological safety early on.
1: And I'm wondering, what are you seeing now with, you know, coming out of pandemic and this hybrid work world where I've heard a lot of people describing problems and challenges, right? That as a result of hybrid, there are some things that you have to do differently with how you run a meeting. And actually, I think everything you just said makes perfect sense in hybrid, but just curious what you're what you're hearing, what you're seeing, and what you're advising people To do with regards to kind of hybrid meetings and making them more inclusive if anything different than what you already said
0: yeah there's just a couple of added points the hybrid environment allows you to have another channel of communication because you have the chat and so if you do really want to pull someone in i can actually put in the chat direct message or to everyone alan i'd like to hear from you or if you're having trouble jumping in in a meeting, you could put your idea in the chat, you're still getting those viewpoints. So utilize the chat is a huge piece of advice. And then the other big thing, if you're gonna use a remote meeting where some people are in person and some people are remote, everyone should be on their own computer with their own little Zoom or WebEx or Meets or Teams view in front of them. So we're all the same size to create equity and inclusion basically. I was at a meeting recently and they said, you can't do that because it'll echo. Well, just like only one person in the meeting room turns on their audio. Otherwise, the two people who were remote or the four people who are remote are not fully included in the meeting. And so what we tend to see is they start doing other things. They're not really participating. They're checking their email. You're not getting the full benefit of having them there.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder what people as they hear you say that, right, what's going through their heads, because I, what's going through mine is that I probably have an example of that at least once a week. I agree with you, you can't tell who's talking, you can't see them because the camera doesn't pick them up. It, it really um, creates a kind of a challenging environment. We'll be back after a short break. Stay with us. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash now. There's this nonstop media course about the great resignation and burnout and quiet quitting and all this stuff. I'd love to get your take on it sort of through the lens of inclusive leadership. How should we think about it?
0: Yeah. So I'll say, you know, you and I have known each other for a while. So when the pandemic was getting started, (laughs) I felt like this is really going to change the world of work. No one's going to go back to work and go back to the way it used to be because we've all been changed. And I think so many of us realized that the workplace just didn't work for us. We were going along because we didn't think there was an alternative, but once the alternate universe was revealed, I think it's not going back. Like We are going to have to adjust. And I think what we're going to adjust to is actually a more effective, efficient workplace. Yes, it hurts for people who are used to the way it used to be, but It's happening, okay? And I think what we're seeing with quiet quitting and the great resignation is a lot of people who want to find a workplace that they feel like it really works for them. And we particularly see this for members of marginalized or underrepresented groups. So women are quitting more than men, people of color, members of the LGBTQ community. And we see the same thing for the individuals who want to work remotely, those from underrepresented marginalized groups. Are more likely to prefer working remotely. Why? Well, because if they go into the workplace and they don't get this experience of inclusion, they don't feel welcomed, they don't feel like they can contribute equally, they suffer from microaggressions, then why would they want to go there, right? So this means a couple things. One, I think it's really important to have flexible work schedules. If that's within your power or not, I think it's important. But it also speaks to the fact that leaders who are effective at creating an environment where everyone feels welcomed and like they belong, like they are valued, are going to want to show up. They're not going to quiet quit. They're not going to quit. They're not going to want to work remotely. They're going to want to be there with people who see them. It's only when they feel like they're not seen that they want to go somewhere else.
1: Yeah, so so that's really interesting. Leaders can create an environment where people want to come in. And is is the answer then that there's a set of things that leaders can do to sort of find their way forward in this topic. Because I've talked to a lot of people, does anybody know where this is going? And there's not a single person I've ever met that says, yep, this is where it's going. No, but we're making this up as we go. So what's your your roadmap? You just gave us one, but let's do it again. uh, Because I think you have a really important point of view on this topic about hybrid work and how leaders will retain people and get the most out of them, right? And drive innovation and drive engagement.
0: Yeah, I mean- For me, I think the baseline is you're going to have to allow a certain amount of flexibility in how, when, and where people do their work. We know you can do it because everyone did it. And I worked with a lot of financial institutions before the pandemic. And this, even then, for retaining women in the workplace, came up very frequently. Women want more flex time. And they don't want to be punished for using it because pre-pandemic, numerous studies showed Even when you offer flex time, women suffer uh, in terms of promotability, whereas men taking the same amount of flex time don't. And I think it's, you know, to some extent reflects how you view the people on your team. Do you want them there because you think if they're not in front of you, they're not going to be working as hard? If that's the reason, (laughs) you can imagine why people don't want to work for you, right? Like, I don't want to work for someone who doesn't trust me. That's probably not the reason. And so... You can communicate the reasons you want people in the office, but I still think you're going to need a certain amount of flexibility. How much it is is, you know, up to you. We can be flexible with that. Step two, you get this certain amount of flexibility, whatever it is, you've communicated why you want people in the office. Is how can you create an environment where people actually want to be there? And so they're not pushing it. If you say you can work remotely two days, they're not like two and a half days, but they wanna be there. And I would start paying attention to. Who you're talking to, who you're acknowledging for a job well done, who you're giving the best assignments to, who you're having small talk with, who you're tapping on the shoulder for opportunities. If I were getting tapped on the shoulder for opportunities and people walking by my desk telling me what a great job I did and I want your input on X, Y, and Z, that's going to make me want to show up at work. So I think especially those people who want their team back in the office really need to do some introspection.
1: Yep. I love it. Great set of questions. And it'll be interesting to watch how this plays out, but I suspect those that choose to go back to business as usual the old way will not be on the winning side of of this equation. I agree. So now let's talk about connecting inclusive leadership to the core values, culture, strategy. So people want to develop a DEI strategy. How do you connect it to these other things, and, and the and you're at a big company, and so you got a machine, right? There's a strategy, there's a culture, there are values on the walls. Like what are people doing to make this rise to the occasion and plug in, weave into the fabric of the enterprise? How's that how do you do that?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I, you know, it's a particularly good question because this seems to be a big differentiator in successful DEI and less successful is tying it to the strategy, being thoughtful, being holistic, not just here's a program, here's a training, I'm just going to like, you know, throw some stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Change is hard. And so people look to understand why is this happening. And so the more that you can explain your DEI strategy and work in relation to the larger corporate values and strategy the better able people are on your team and your organization to understand it. They can make sense. Why? So we have a growth strategy. Okay, this is my, we have a growth strategy. How are we ever going to meet that strategic goal if we're not able to attract and retain top talent? And it's pretty easy to share numbers on recruitment. I mean, recruitment's tough right now. So if you have a growth strategy, you're gonna need a strong DEI lens in order to attract and retain top talent. If you have an innovation strategy, explain DEI in terms of innovation. If your cultural values are respect, you can explain why this is so important to your cultural values. But I think of everything as a PowerPoint slide, right? But the more you can show how all of these things are connected, and this isn't a one-off, this isn't like, oh, this week we all really care about DEI. And, you know, it's a fad. But in fact, this is part of our broader success strategy as a business. And I'm not trying to change your values.
1: So I'm wondering, I read something that said, millennials and Gen Z cohort, they prefer an organization that has a DEI strategy. What do you make of it?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I love this generation. Gen Z is the first generation to be raised in a majority minority. They've grown up in a more diverse America, if this is us centric then a lot of us and they have higher expectations of inclusion because there's you know lots of good things like the anti bullying movement i feel like when i was a kid if you were different people harassed and bullied you and so then they go into corporate america and it's not to say it's like middle school but like there's still some cults like pretty toxic cultures and they're not accepting of that and it's super interesting i'll have students ask, you know, they're in job interviews and they're like, so what's your diversity strategy? And they tell me their recruiters, like, you're like a a white guy. Like, why are you asking me this question? And they're like, I want to work in a workplace where I can be successful, but I want to work in a place that everyone can be successful. So they care about it. It's just a different mindset. And they're also the same people that are not going to go back to the office 100% (laughs) in person uh, because they just have different expectations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Love it. All right. So let's ask as we're kind of wrapping up a couple of different thoughts, but I guess the most important is advice. Like, if we could, if you could reflect back, what advice do you have for early career leaders and, you know, the future rising stars of tomorrow about how to lead and how to lead inclusively?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would start for all of us, especially young or earlier career leaders, working on your network. And so that your network, starts to look as diverse as the organizations that you're leading or working within so that you are better equipped at navigating, uh, working with, and interacting with people who are different from yourself. But also, when it comes to recruiting, you are likely to call the people you know. And if you have a diverse network, then you're better able to attract the very best talent. So I think that's hugely important. One of the best ways to break down Bias, and we haven't talked really about bias today, but we all have biases. One of the best ways to reduce bias and the impact of bias on your behavior is contact. So, the extent to which you can live with, mentor, have mentees from different demographic groups or who hold different identities than your own, the more equipped you'll be to lead effectively across difference. Um, there was a great study, and it was also at Sun Microsystems. Now, Oracle. They did this implementation of a senior male leader was paired with more junior female leaders in a mentoring relationship. And the the mentees, of course, were, you know, six times more likely than average to get promoted. They got more raises, et cetera. But so too did the mentors. And so you have to believe that you're getting a benefit from mentoring someone who's different from yourself. And for yourself. When you think of your mentors, make sure they are equally diverse. Look for a board of directors of mentors, like people who are going to weigh in on your career, and make sure that those folks are also diverse. I think this is, I mean, for me, that's huge. It's just like, consider your network, look around you, and then come up with a plan of how, so that's part one. Part two is come up with a plan of how you're going to contribute to DEI. More and more companies are asking this during job interviews. How will you contribute to diversity, equity, and inclusion in our organization? And if you have nothing to say, it's a terrible interview. You're not going to get the job. But more importantly, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing nothing for diversity, equity, and inclusion? And if you really aren't, then, you know, find something that resonates with you, a a passion you can lean into, or you can hang out at some different employee resource groups. Just find a way to start having an impact.
1: As we wrap up, I want to ask you the question that we're asking all of our guests. Just to close on this, what are you curious about now? What are you learning now? What are you interested in?
0: Some of these additional facets of diversity, like mental health in the workplace, this is something that is so important that I, I haven't paid attention to or I haven't studied it systematically but I look at the levels of mental health concerns following the pandemic. I mean, it's it's been true in college and university life. If you just look at our students for a long, long time. And I think students were very affected by the pandemic in terms of their mental health. But I think a lot of, or I know, right? You can look at the data, like things like suicides and drug abuse and I wonder for things like the great resignation. I think we frame it up as this idea that people are like, ah, screw it. I'm gonna quit. But you know, there's a much darker side to that. And there's a lot of people who are leaving the workforce because they really can't take and shouldn't have to take whatever abuse they're experiencing, or the, you know, the mental distress that they're experiencing. And so, what's the role of leadership in this? Like, I can't think of a more important thing for leaders to be focusing on right now than the mental health and well-being of their teams.
1: Yep. All right, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on our podcast, Leading Up. We'll be looking forward to talking to you again, and we'll see how we're doing on looking into some of the topics, the well-being in the future, and some of these more deep topics. But Stephanie Johnson, thanks so much for joining us on the Leading Up podcast.
0: Thank you, Alan. Have a great day.
1: Thank you so much for listening to Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy. If you've learned something new, tell a friend about this show. Follow the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, such as Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. That way you never miss an episode. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you close skill gaps and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex Vickmanis, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Danielle Roth, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard.